You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. So today's Bible readings are taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, and Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I'll be reading from the CSB version. Uh, Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace, that he gave me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I had briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread 
from the house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. God, we do ask that uh, you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now to him, who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to his power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Really? To God be glory in the church? I mean, look, to God be glory in Christ Jesus, I get that. I understand that Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. Of course, God's glory is shown in Jesus. But really? The church? You? (laughs) Me? I mean, these words in in Ephesians 3, they have to be the most exalted words about the church in the entire New Testament because they almost uncomfortably put the church side by side with Jesus. They're saying that God's glory is shown not only in his son, but, but in you and me. Just think about that, right? God's mission right from the beginning of time was to fill the earth with his glory And now Paul says that that glory is found in this ballroom right here in Glen Waverley. He says that God's glory, that that is his mission to fill the earth with, is found in his church. He's saying that the church is the new Eden that will cover the face of the earth. The church is the new Jerusalem whose light will shine to the nations The church sits at the heart of God's mission to the world. That that is a remarkable claim. Because when you look at the church, or maybe when you look at our church, it's a bit hard to believe, isn't it? In fact, I want to give you three reasons why I think the church is the last place that you should ever find God's glory. If you want to look for God's glory, if you want to look for the splendor of God, don't come to church. Here's three reasons why. Firstly, the church is full of sinners. It's not that place of justice and love that Jerusalem was meant to be. It's full of people who who fight and bicker and hurt each other. So often the church is the furthest picture from Eden that you could ever imagine. Secondly, the church is full of fools like me. Incompetent, unskilled. We're not exactly the Avengers of world mission, right? We're more like the church basketball team trying to win the NBA. Thirdly, the church is full of conflict. This is a bad idea. This many people in one place, all who are so different from each other. How in the world can this team ever stay united? We're more likely to do, well, let's face it, what so many churches do, right, if we're honest? Turn on each other, divide, split, 
and call it church planting. No, like the, the, the church is the last place that you would ever find God's glory, or so it seems. So we say to ourselves something like this, you know what? I love God, but, but I don't love the church. I'm done with the church. I even like evangelism. I'll be on mission in my own life. I'll share the gospel on campus. I'll do it in my workplace. I just won't do it in the church. So friends, I want to I suggest that whatever we might think of the church, we need to reckon with these inescapable words. To him be glory in the church. We need to, we need to embrace this inescapable reality. The church is the means and the goal of God's mission. The church is the means and the goal of God's mission. I want to take it one step further. The local church, churches just like ours, is where God's glory is most beautifully shone to our world. Let me say that one more time. I want to suggest even more strongly, that the local church, just like ours, is where God's glory is most beautifully shone to the world. And I want to show you three reasons why. Three reasons why the church sits at the heart of God's mission and why the church sits at the center of God's heart. Here's the first reason. The church is the hope of reconciliation. The church is the hope of reconciliation. Let's be honest, when you look outside, our world is both beautiful and broken, isn't it? There are those moments where we can almost catch a glimpse of what the world was meant to be. Moments when families are whole, strangers are kind, nations are at peace. But they're fleeting moments because we blink. And then beauty turns to brokenness, a world where, where nothing fits together, where families are broken, strangers are cruel, nations are at war. It's as if all the Lego pieces of our world just don't fit together. And you look at that brokenness, and you just long in your heart of hearts for this world to be put right. And for some of us, we look at our lives and we long for our lives to be put right. For all the brokenness in our world to be made whole again. Broken marriages fixed. Broken families restored. Broken lives healed. You see, what we want more than anything else is this word. We want reconciliation. Things to be made whole again. That's the word that, that best captures the mission of God. God is on Operation Reconciliation. He is moving and working every moment of human history to bring this world back together. Because I say, friends, that those moments of beauty, those glimpses of beauty in our world, our world wasn't always meant to be like this, you know? In the beginning, our world was beautiful and whole. It was a garden. A kingdom, a temple full of justice and love. And God created you and me to be his children so that we can be this beautiful family that can, that can be together forever. Isn't that what every family longs for? To be together forever. 
But just like a reckless child, we picked up the Lego set of God's creation and smashed it on the living room floor. We broke his family apart. And ever since that moment, God has been working to bring our family back together, to reconcile what we destroyed. And we see in Genesis 12, the first piece of the puzzle was a man named Abram. Abram's family would be the start of this Operation Reconciliation. Israel, Abram's family, would be the first few pieces of the puzzle in the middle around which all the other pieces then fit together. And that's what's happening in Isaiah 2 a few weeks ago, where when the Gentile nations would go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that they were those other puzzle pieces being fit back together around Israel. They were that experience of God restoring his family. And the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile would be the heart of God's bigger operation. The heart and the beginning of God's bigger mission to bring and reconcile together absolutely everything. You see, throughout the whole Old Testament, we've always known this truth. God was always going to bring Jew and Gentile back together. What we didn't know was how. How would he do it? How would God bring Jew and Gentile together? How would he reconcile warring tribes? How would he bring together a broken humanity? How would he fix a broken world? That's the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, 3 to 4. He doesn't just mean something secret. No, by mystery, he means something hidden. Look at verse 2. In the administration of God's grace, or literally in the economy or plan of God's salvation, how's he going to bring this world back together? The answer is right there in verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise, and here's the punchline, in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel, there's the mystery now revealed. God is going to reconcile all people and all things in Jesus. Jesus is the linchpin of creation. He holds it all together. And if you rewind to chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we see how he does it. We see how he does it. You see, you and me, I'm going to guess that most of us here in this room are not Jewish. It's a guess. I could be wrong. But for us Gentiles, we face a double problem. Yes, we have a broken relationship with God, but we also have a broken relationship with his people. Notice, we have a vertical problem, and we have a horizontal problem. You were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. There's our horizontal problem. Without hope and without God in the world. There's our vertical problem. Do you realize that many of us, we focus on the horizontal problem first, don't we? We, we decry and lament things like racial injustice, gender inequity, systemic oppression. All those things are legitimate and real problems. But our primary problem is vertical. It's not with each other. Our primary problem is with God. We are without God, Paul writes. 
And here's the logic. It's only when we can fix that vertical problem that all our horizontal relationships can be healed. Look look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is brought near to God. For he is our peace who made both Jew and Gentile one. There's a horizontal relationship and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, you see what God has done in Jesus. He has brought us near to himself and then near to each other. He's taken away our hostility with him and then he's taken away our hostility with each other. We're like, we're like a child who disowns their father, runs away from home, and then is estranged from all of our siblings. But we can't come back home to our siblings until we've reconciled with our dad. We need to fix the vertical first. And just like that child, we deserve to be punished for, for smashing God's creation, for breaking up the family, for turning wholeness into hostility for turning beauty into brokenness. And the only way that this whole family gets put back together, the only way that our world gets put back together, the only way that our broken lives gets put back together is if we solve the vertical problem first. If our punishment is dealt with, if our hostility is settled, But instead of making us pay the punishment we deserve, Jesus personally pays it for us. He he cops our hostility. He allows himself to be broken so that we might be made whole. Look at verse 16. He did this, that is, he died, so that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Why did Jesus die? Yeah, it's true. He he died to forgive our sins. But even more than that, he died to reconcile us to God. And he died to reconcile us to each other. Jesus died to make a broken family whole. And I want you to know that family is called the church. That family is where we're seated right now. The church is that picture on the box cover of the puzzle. It's what all the Lego pieces have been building up to form. It's a new family, once broken, now beautiful. Once hostile, now whole. And our existence as a church, right? Our existence as cross and crown announces to the world that you don't have to stay broken. You can be whole again. We often think that sin in the church is a defect, don't we? I don't want to bring my friends to church because there's just so much sin and people are so difficult. But I want you to see that actually, in some strange irony, our sin in the church is actually a design. Let me explain, right? This is what happens. We get disillusioned with church. We see all the sin and brokenness that's here. So what do we do? We run to parachurch ministries, good parachurch ministries, where everything just seems so much easier. Well, think about it, right? This is why I love parachurch ministries. Let me sing in praise of them. In a parachurch, you get to choose your friends. In a local church, you don't get to choose your family. 
In a parachurch, the difficult people graduate. But in the local church, they never leave. And in this family, we sin against each other. We hurt each other. We break relationships with each other. And here's the irony. That's the point. Because as we sin against each other, we then forgive each other. We then reconcile with each other. We then show the world what, that what is true of us can be true of them. We, we put so much pressure on ourselves, I think, to be perfect, but the world shouldn't see in the church a picture of perfection. It should see a reflection of reconciliation. It should see a people who are broken and sinful, who are pursuing repentance, reconciliation and restoration, a broken family continually restored in Jesus. If Ephesians 1 to 3 says we are a reconciled family, then Ephesians 4 to 6 shows us keep pursuing reconciliation. Chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You see, if you're not a Christian, you might look at the church and you might look around and go, oh my gosh, it's just such a bunch of 200 broken people. You're right, and we've got room for more. (laughs) Because the church is the picture of God reconciling the whole world. And here's how he does it. He starts with you and him by forgiving your sin. He then works on you and the church by teaching us to forgive each other. And then he works through this church to the world by inviting everyone to find reconciliation in Jesus. Can you see? It's like three concentric circles, as it were, and the church sits at the epicenter of God's reconciling purposes in the world. It starts here, and it echoes into eternity. All of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our conflict, they're not actually in themselves obstacles to the mission, Ironically, they're necessary ingredients in it. Not to justify it, but they give us the opportunity to forgive each other, to reconcile with each other, to show the world that we can be whole again and that reconciliation is possible in Jesus. The church extends the hope of reconciliation. But secondly, I want you to see that the church magnifies the wisdom of God. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? The church magnifies the wisdom of God. Look around, right? The church is full of, let's say, less than impressive people. I mean, if 1 Corinthians 1 is right, which it is, the church should be full of people who are embarrassing, awkward, Just a little strange. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. The church has no worldly power, no social influence, no public respectability. If you work in corporate and you leave Collins Street to work in a church, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? You don't really want to say it. Who would forego a road trip with mates and when your friends go, oh, why can't you come? You say, it's because I want to go to church. The best we'll do most of the time is, I wish I could come, have to go to church. 
Paul isn't writing this letter from Oxford or Cambridge. No, he's writing it from a prison cell. Ephesians 6.20, for this I am an ambassador in chains. The, the church is not wise, let's face it. It is just a little embarrassing. Paul is not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed. Look at what Paul writes in verses 8 to 10. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is the line, right? Here's the punchline. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Friends, can you hear what Paul is saying? Angels and demons and all heavenly hosts, if you want to see the incalculable riches of Christ, look at my church. If you want to see my heart and my plan for the salvation of the world, look at the church. If you want to see my wisdom in its full panoramic glory, look at my church. The church is the prism of God's glory, the, the epicenter of his plans and purposes. It is ground zero of his project to reconcile all things to himself. And friends, thus has it always been. The church has always been the means of God's mission. Verse 11, this is according to his eternal purpose, accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that remarkable to think that the whole point of absolutely everything was this moment right here? The word church literally means gathering. And throughout the Old Testament, that's exactly what God has been doing. He's been gathering a people for himself. We've seen it, haven't we? He gathered Adam and Eve in, in Eden. He gathered Israel out of Egypt. He, he gathered the nations to Jerusalem. And now he's gathering Jew and Gentile, you and me, together in Christ. That's who we are. That's who the church is. The gathering of God's people around the throne of Jesus in heaven. I love this. Hebrews 12 is the passage about church. You, friends, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. Do you see what's going on there? Can you catch a glimpse of that heavenly reality? That the church is God's people from across time and space gathered around the throne of Jesus in heaven. That is what magnifies his wisdom to the world. The gospel is the story of God gathering a people for himself. And that means the church is the means of God's mission to the world. The church is the gospel made visible. The church, you and I, we exist to summon the nations to gather with us around the throne of Christ. It's why we say as our church, our whole vision is that we might see people from every tribe worship Christ as king. Another way to say that is, 
We long to see people from every tribe and nation be the church. Ephesians 1.10 says this, God's ultimate goal in all of creation is this, to bring everything together in Christ. How will he do that? Chapter 3, verse 10, through the church. The prism of his glory, the radiance of his wisdom, the display of his beauty. Now, you might sit there and go, Adam, that is a big statement about church. And when I look at our church and other local churches, no shot, not true. But I get it, right? I can rationalize my way around this by saying, when we talk about church, Paul's talking about God's people everywhere. He's not talking about local churches. I want to show you that he is. I want to show you that when Paul's talking about the church in such exalted terms, he's talking about churches just like ours. Look look at Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. This is what Paul writes. In Christ, the whole building being put together, that is the church universal, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then he writes, in Christ, you, the church in Ephesus, are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. In him, the universal church grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you local church are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Can you see what God is saying? What is true of the church universal is visibly expressed in local churches just like ours. The glory and wisdom contained in the heavenly assembly is magnified in physical assemblies just like this. The local church sits at the heart of God's mission to gather a people for himself. The local church is God's primary means of mission to the world. Friends, can I say, many of us here have been blessed by so many parachurch ministries. I love them. I sit on the committees and boards of a number of them. Ministries like AFES or Power to Change. Scripture Union or BSF, Belgrave Heights or Reach Australia, ministries that many of us support and love. But let me tell you what a lot of them will tell me. They say, Adam, we don't exist for our own sake. We exist for the sake of the local church. This is literally why they're called parachurch. It means alongside the church. Each of these ministries are valuable because they exist not for themselves, but for the sake of local churches. All of those ministries are good. They are set up with a particular purpose for a particular people. In one sense, they're like the missionary bands of the New Testament. Hand-picked, purpose-built, teams sent out for a specific mission. We need them. We praise God for them. But I do want to say, however valuable they are, they are not the church that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians. The church is the gathering of God's people by God's word, around God's table, and under God's care. The church is the gathering of God's people by God's word, around God's table, and under God's care. What do I mean by that? We are God's people. We're not just a subset of it. We're not just students or pastors, men or women. No, we are united by Christ. We are gathered by God's word. We respond to the call of the gospel, not any other mission, however worthy it might be. We gather around God's table. We express that our primary fellowship and belonging is here. 
and it is around Christ. And we gather under God's care, under the oversight of specific pastors and elders who are responsible and accountable for shepherding our souls. I love parachurch ministries. I serve at least three of them in a variety of different ways. But the parachurch is not the church. The denomination is not the church. The place where God's glory and wisdom shine to the world is here in this church and in thousands of other churches just like ours. It's why most of the New Testament letters are written to local churches. It is why in Acts, Paul travels around Asia Minor planting churches. It's why in Acts 14, what does Paul do after he evangelizes the nations for Christ? He establishes them in Christian fellowship. He appoints elders. He plants churches. Paul literally evangelizes churches into existence. See, I want to say evangelism can take all number of forms. It's good. We need to be doing it. We need to be sending people out to global missions. We we need to be having people on campuses and in workplaces sharing the gospel where we are. But I actually do think, and this is my view, so I'm not going to say this from the Bible, but I'm going to say this is my view. I think church planting is actually the greatest expression of Christian mission. I think church planting is the greatest expression of Christian mission. Because the church is the means and the goal of God's mission in the world. That it's the point. It's the means. It's the goal. It's what God is doing. He's literally evangelizing churches into existence. And I want to say, finally, the reason why the church sits at the heart of God's glory is that it is the fullness of God's love. It is the fullness of God's love. Look at verses 14 to 21. We find one of Paul's great prayers, but notice that this prayer isn't for individual Christians, it's for the church. Every time Paul writes the word you in these verses, it's plural, not singular. It's writing about us. Verse 18, with all the saints. This, friends, is a prayer for the church. If you want to pray for our church in your own personal time, here is a prayer that you can pray. Can I say, just as as an aside, I know a lot of us have been thinking about prayer through our BLT small group network. Here's my new regime of prayer each week. This is how I'm trying to do it. So for what it's worth, Monday, go with my alliteration. I'm a preacher. Monday, I pray for ministry and mission. Tuesday, I pray for the tasks ahead of me in the week. Wednesday, I pray for our world. Thursday, this is a stretch, I pray for teams, so I pray for our staff team and our church council. Friday, I pray for family and friends, I'm getting there. Saturday, I pray for sinners, and Sunday, I pray for saints. I had to make it work in some way. If you're on Sunday like today, this is going to be my prayer, and this should be our prayer as well. Just, Just hear this, right? It's a prayer saturated in love. Cross and crown, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer. Don't you love that? Just look, he goes, I pray that you might know Christ's love That surpasses knowledge. I want you to comprehend the incomprehensible. I want you to understand what is beyond understanding. I want you to be overwhelmed by God's love. Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus 
and churches just like ours might be filled to the brim with the love of Christ. He wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 1.22, Paul writes that the church is the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, at that point in chapter 1, I don't know what he's talking about. Now I do. The fullness of God is found in the love of Christ. The fullness of God is found in the love of Christ. And the church, believe it or not, this church and churches all across our world, we are the fullness of that love. We are the place that brims and overflows with a love whose depths cannot be known. We are the place where God's love spills out and and floods the world and waters the dry land. Friends, I hope you can see that the church sits at the heart of the gospel because it is the means of God's mission to the world. But I want you to see it's something so much more than that. The church is the goal of God's mission to the world. It's why Paul prays that our church might be filled with all the fullness of God. You can't get more filled than that to be full of the love of Christ. So yes, it's true. The gospel is the story of God gathering a people for himself. But I want to say it's so much more. The gospel is the love story of Jesus coming for his bride. In John 17, 23, I love this. Jesus, God the Son, prays to his Father, I am in them, the church, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. Get this, you have loved them as you have loved me. What is the goal of God's mission? God desires to love the church as he loves his own son. God desires to love the church as he loves his own son. As almost blasphemous as it may sound, he wants to love you just like he loves Jesus. His goal, his mission, is to bring the church, you and me, into this eternal marriage of perfect love. So when we read that beautiful picture in Ephesians 5, we're not actually talking about earthly marriage, primarily. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Do do you know what that means, right? It means that whether you're single or married in this life, whether you have one friend or, you know, 2,000 fake friends on Facebook, it doesn't matter because the church is where we find the greatest love of all. It's where we find Jesus' love for you and me. It is the church on whom Jesus has set his heart in love. I get it, all right? I'm a church kid. I grew up in church, and the church is full of sin. It's full of hurt, full of brokenness, and there's the number of times you just want to chuck in the towel and walk away. I want to say, friends, those moments are the shadows that give us opportunities for the, for the light of God's love to shine more brightly. The pain of those wounds helps us feel the pleasure of God's love. How is it? How in the world could Paul ever say, to God be glory in you and me? Because the church is the fullness of God's love. 
The church is where he deposits the love that he has for his son. The church is the place where he shares that love with you and me. We started our church. Um, the, the, the joke about church planting is that you don't need to be the typical church planter to plant a church, and I'm not that. The typical church planter, they say, is a cool guy wearing skinny jeans who starts a church with two people uh, in his garage uh, with his dog. I don't have a dog, I didn't have a house, uh, and I will never be caught wearing skinny jeans. Um, we, we started our church with about 20 to 24 of us in, in my parents' house. Don't even think about it. Uh, and it was, it was so small, and it was easy to love everyone. You knew everyone. Church has grown tenfold. And we look around and see all these new people. I'm willing to say that I think I know about 95% of you guys by name. I think. I'm not going to put myself to the test. That's a very bad idea. Can I say that as our church has grown, honestly, I don't love this church any less than I did at the beginning. If anything, I love it more. There is a bit of the Asian dad thing where you never say how you feel. Um, so hat off, let me say how I feel. It's hard. Uh, I love you. I mean that. I genuinely mean that. Thank you. <laughs> we did membership over the last two weeks. And meeting all these new people that join our church family is one of the most special things in the world. We ask our BLT leaders, hey, put up your hand if you want to come and help us. And, and I know Naomi Sue always puts up her hand for this because she wants to meet who's new to the family. How good is that? I, I look around and I know most of you and I see and I know most of your stories as you come here and it is the most beautiful thing in the world that God would, would gather this family. Do you love the church? Do you love our church? I'm not, don't worry, I'm not saying that there's much here necessarily to be loved. I'm saying we love our church because Jesus loves her. Do you see the church like our Lord sees his bride? Do you love her like he loves her? Or are there those moments in my own heart that I know that are there where we resent her? Maybe not resent her, but maybe we ignore her, neglect her, where the church is irrelevant to how we live for Jesus. And here's the catch. We might actually love the Lord. We might even be on about his mission, but we might not care about his bride. But can I say, she's the point. <laughs> she's the point. It's as if you watch too many rom-coms, right? And God looks at the church and says, it's always been you. She's the goal of his mission. He came, he lived, he died, he rose for her. He came, he lived, he died, he rose for you. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. The church is the fullness of God's love. She must also be the object of ours. The Bible says, what God joins together, let no one separate. 
I think we do that all the time. <laughs> I think we do that with mission and church. We think that church is all about belonging over here, where we come each week to be fed by God's word and enjoy the warmth of loving fellowship. It is. Don't get me wrong, it is. And we assume that mission is all about going, things out there, things apart from the church, in our lives, on campus, in our workplace, by ourselves. And the worlds of church and mission very rarely meet. In fact, I suspect that at some level, I know in my heart of hearts, I don't want them to meet. You know, it's that moment where you, where you bring your two worlds together and you introduce your work friends to your Christian friends and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, I feel so exposed right now. I don't want that. I want this to be the place where I can sacrifice for Jesus and this to be the place where no sacrifice will ever come. I once had someone say to me, Adam, I get it. It's great that people are becoming Christian. I just wish they'd go somewhere else. Church is too big. I don't belong anymore. Now, I can sympathize with the human desire to belong, but can I say the church is the gathering of God's people around Jesus, not me? What matters is not that I know everyone at church, but that everyone at church knows him. Because he is where the fullness of love is found. He sits at the center of who we are. Mission is not the enemy of belonging. We belong so that we might be on mission. And we are on mission so that the world might belong. We gather together so that we might gather yet more people into the church. God's family, once broken, now beautiful, once hostile, now made whole. Friends, here, this is the heart of God's love. This is the fullness of God's love. So well may we say, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in you and me and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. It is hard for us, God, to fathom the extent of your love for a people so undeserving, and yet you love us. We're not quite sure why. When we look at our sin, our brokenness, not just individually, but as a church, we wonder, really, could this be the prism of your glory? And yet it is. The Lord Jesus came and lived and died and rose all for his church, all for his bride. It's always been her. Thank you, God. We love you, and we thank you for loving us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.